Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would cause us to find our identity in you, in the fact that you have made us in your image and likeness, and in the fact that you sent none less than your own son to redeem us. And Lord, I pray that these things, the fact that we know who we are because of who you are, we pray, Lord, that these things would then give us meaning and significance in life so that when we suffer, we might bear it well. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> in a town called Siget, Transylvania, in 1941, there was a 12-year-old boy named Eli Wiesel. You might have heard of Eli Wiesel. He survived World War II. He survived a concentration camp and came to the United States, and he became a rather famous writer. In his town of Saget, Transylvania, first, uh, when the Nazis came through, the, their first move was to take anyone not born in Transylvania, any Jews not born in Transylvania, and drive them out. And then, after that, uh, in the spring of 1944, the Jews were plundered. The Nazis came in, and they just seized what the Jews owned. And then they made the Jews wear a yellow star on their arm or on their clothing somewhere. And then they moved them out of their homes and they put them in ghettos. All this happened gradually. And then one night, they deported them. They loaded them up on cattle cars and they, they moved them to a concentration camp. And Elie Wiesel writes of the moment that he was forced to leave. He says, quote, I looked at our house, where I had spent so many years in my search for God, in fasting in order to hasten the coming of the Messiah, in imagining what my life would be like. As he was being taken with the other Jews on these trains, he recounts that at one point his father prayed a traditional Jewish prayer. His father prayed, may his name be blessed and magnified. And Eli Wiesel recounts his reaction. He says, For the first time, I felt revolt rise up in me. Why should I bless his name? The eternal Lord of the universe, the all-powerful and terrible, was silent. What had I to thank him for? And then when they arrived at Auschwitz, his mother and his younger sister were put into a furnace. And Elie Wiesel writes this, these two paragraphs that are scorching in their intensity. The, these, these two paragraphs are on the wall of the, the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. He wrote, Never shall I forget that night, the first night in the camp, which has turned my life into one long night, seven times cursed and seven times sealed. Never shall I forget that smoke. Never shall I forget the little faces of the children whose bodies I saw turned into wreaths of smoke 
beneath a silent blue sky. Never shall I forget those flames which consumed my faith forever. Never shall I forget that nocturnal silence which deprived me for all eternity of the desire to live. Never shall I forget those moments which murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams to dust. Never shall I forget these things, even if I am condemned to live as long as God himself. Never. There's no doubt that what Ellie Wazell experienced is worse than words can describe. There's no doubt that what he experienced is worse than what any of us in this room have been through. But there is also no doubt that others in history have experienced things as bad and responded in an opposite way. And in Psalm 88, we're going to see an opposite response. We're going to see circumstances that are just as bad as those in which Eli Wiesel found himself. And yet the psalmist is clinging to faith in God. And, you know, for, for Eli Wiesel, with all respect to what he suffered and with all respect to the power of his words... For him to say that his God has been murdered is for him to begin to identify himself by an alternative system of beliefs in an alternative narrative. What he's saying is, I no longer believe the story that the Bible is telling us. And he's now identifying himself as someone who exists in a different story. And he then forsakes the meaning that the story of the Bible gives to him. And what we're going to see in Psalm 88 is someone who, in the midst of his suffering, continues to identify himself by the God of the Bible and continues to find meaning in the Scriptures. I would invite you to open to Psalm 88. If you're there, you'll notice that that at the top of this psalm, above verse 1, there's a superscription. And it tells us that this is a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah. And then it says, to the choir master, according to Mahalath, la'anoth. We don't know what those words mean. But then it says, amaskil. And, and we've noted this word, maskil, before in the Psalms. This is a, this is a Hebrew word that, that means something like for causing wisdom. So this is a psalm intended to cause us to have wisdom and skill in living. And then we read that this is of Heman, the Ezraite. So I take it that this guy, Heman the Ezraite, wrote this psalm. And um, uh, Tim Keller writes about this guy. He says that the psalm title tells us the author was Heman, a leader of the Kohathite Guild of Musicians, who wrote many of the psalms, some of the greatest literature in world history. And then listen to these words. His experiences of darkness turned him into an artist who has helped millions of people. His experience of darkness turned him into an artist who has helped millions of people. Do you know what's behind that? What's behind that is the idea that God has purposes for our suffering. Keller also writes about this psalm. He says, such prayers in the dark, like Psalm 88 are more victorious than they look. The reason 
The reason that uh, these, these comments are being made is because Psalm 88 is regarded by many people to be the bleakest psalm in the book. Uh, most of the psalms that, that, that present the psalmist crying out for help, most of them resolve by the psalmist saying, you know, something like, I cried out to you and you delivered me. This one doesn't do that. Many of the psalms resolve by the psalmist, uh, you know, he, he's crying out to help and then for, to, to the Lord for help, and then eventually he gets to a place where he begins to praise. This one doesn't do that. This one, it's as though the pleas for help at the beginning gurgle in watery darkness at the end. Look, look at the last words uh, of, of Psalm 88. My companions have become darkness. So this psalm ends in darkness. It starts in darkness and it ends in darkness. This psalmist does not resolve into praise. He does not recount deliverance. And yet, and yet, look at verse 1. O Lord, God of my salvation. It's not going to get better for him. He's not going to receive deliverance. He's not going to resolve into praise, but he is not abandoning the God of the Bible. This is, this is tremendously significant that even in the midst of all this darkness, he is saying, O oh Lord, God of my salvation. What he, is saying, what he is saying here is, you, Lord, and, and you can see that the, there are those small caps there. This is you, Yahweh. Oh, Yahweh, God of the Bible. You are the God of my salvation. So this is telling us two things about this guy, Heman. Number one, he is not resorting to idols. And number two, he is not looking for salvation to come from some other place. Now, I think that this psalm breaks down into two-verse units. So we're going to take it in two-verse segments. And in just a minute, I'll, I'll try to show you as we go through how the two-verse the two sets are connected to one another as we come to each of them. Uh, but before we do that, let me first observe that here in verse 1, he says, I cry out day and night. And then look down at verse 9 where there's sort of two lines of verse 9. In the second line, he says, Every day I call upon you, O Lord. And then down in verse 17, he says, They surround me like a flood all day long. These references to the day, they come at the very beginning, in the very middle, and in the very end. And, and the sense is, uh, all day I'm in difficulty, and all day I'm crying out to you. Notice, Verse 1 there, I cry out day and night. Verse 9, every day I call upon you. So th these are sort of organizing features of the psalm where he's, he's in constant difficulty and he's constantly crying out to the Lord. Heman is, is telling us who he is. Number one, he is someone who expects salvation from the God of the Bible. And he's also telling us where he finds meaning, where he finds his significance. He finds his meaning and significance in his identity as one of God's people. Um, this, this, this whole uh, this idea of meaning, this is something that, that people in our culture really wrestle with. And there are kind of there are kind of two responses to this question 
of, of meaning. Um, for many people, um, they've concluded that there is no meaning in life. Um, and, and so they'll say things, <clears throat> they'll say things like um, what, what these, these, uh, these famous writers, people like, people like Jean-Paul Sartre have said, they'll say things like, quote, man is a useless passion. What he's saying is there's no purpose in life, there's, there's no ultimate meaning, man is just a useless bundle of emotions. Um, Albert, another French writer and philosopher, Albert Camus, um, he, he argued that life is really ultimately about the myth of Sisyphus. If you remember this story from, from ancient mythology, Sisyphus was content, condemned his whole life to be pushing this rock up this hill. And just as he got to the top of the hill, the rock would roll back down and he would have to go back down to the bottom of the hill and start pushing the thing back up. And, and, and he, he wrote this. He said, we want love to last. And we know that it doesn't last. Even if by some miracle it were to last a whole lifetime, it would still be incomplete. Because in his world, in his view of things, in his story, when life ends, everything ends. Nothing goes on. It's all meaningless. Another, another response to this, this, this question of, of meaning and this attempt for meaning is, is to try to avoid thinking about it and, and then create meaning for yourself. This is the way that many people in our culture respond to this, this idea. And um, um, Tim Keller argues convincingly, I think, that... If, if you create meaning for yourself, that kind of meaning, if you give yourself a purpose, you know, you know, you believe with the culture, we just evolved, there's no God who's actually giving significance to what I'm doing, uh, and yet I'm going to live for these things that I believe to be valuable. If you do that, when you encounter circumstances like what are described here in Psalm 88, that created meaning is not going to last that created meaning is going to break down. It's not going to hold you through the difficulties. So, so what we need is, is a discovered meaning, a meaning that is outside of us, a meaning that is what it is in spite of what we decide. It's, it's something that is real and true and there. And we see in this psalm that Heman, this guy, he's got a worldview, and an approach to life that gives him this discovered meaning, this real meaning that's going to hold him even as he's facing these, these near-death circumstances. So, so look at what he says here in, in verses 1 through 6. You've got an outline in your bulletin. Verses 1 through 6, we've got a near-death all day cry for help. This guy is near death. Look at, and, and there's a progression where it just gets gradually worse. He starts off in verses 1 and 2 asking the Lord to hear him. Well, he believes that there's a God out there. And he's holding to this God. He believes that this God is sovereign over his circumstances. And yet he believes that even though his circumstances aren't what he would want them to be, it is nevertheless important for him to be faithful to this God. O Lord God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. 
And then he, he, he pleads in verse 2. He's begging the Lord. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. There are some implicit realities in a statement like that. Implicit reality number one. God cares. God cares. That's what Heman believes. Implicit reality number two. God can fix this. God can make this better. So, so this guy, this guy's, even though he's in the darkness, he's walking by faith. And then look at what he, so those two, those ideas, the, the crying out and the prayer, that holds verses one and two together. What holds verses three and four together are the references to Sheol and the pit. Look at verse three. For my soul is full of troubles. Now the, 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 the expression here, my soul is full of troubles, the, the language of being full, this is the language that we find elsewhere to describe pe- people being satisfied as with fat and rich food. People being satisfied with all good things. So this is kind of a, a surprising use of this word satisfied when he says, my soul is, and he's talking as though you, know, you, you eat a, a meal and you're full from the meal, my soul is satisfied with troubles, in other words, what he's saying is something like, I've had enough. I've, I've had my share. I've had all I can take. And then when he says there in verse 3, my life draws near to Sheol. Sheol is the place of the dead. And, and, and one, way to, one way to rephrase what he says here when he says my life draws near to Sheol, he, you could say his life force is reaching out for Sheol. What he's communicating is a desire for death. And I don't think this is suicidal. I would, I would distinguish, following my friend Jeremy Pierre, I would distinguish between somebody who's suicidal and somebody who feels a desire for death, like what Paul articulates. When Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, for me to depart and be with Christ is better by far. And, and that's what this guy's saying. He's saying, my soul is full of trouble. I've had enough. And, and my soul, my life is reaching out for shield. I would, I would prefer to die. He's not suicidal. He doesn't have a plan and he's not ready to kill himself. He knows that God is sovereign over his life and death. But he would like for death to come. If you feel that way, you're kind of in good company. You know? I mean, the, the Apostle Paul felt that way. Philippians 1. For me to depart and be with Christ is better by far. Heman the Ezraite, this guy who was inspired by the Holy Spirit, feels this way. I hope this is comforting to you. And I hope you'll also learn to imitate the faith of Heman and Paul. Paul who recognized it's more necessary for you, he says to the Philippians, for me to remain. Heman who's saying, I'm just going to keep praying. My soul is full of troubles. My life... My life force reaches out for Sheol. My soul draw, my life draws near to Sheol. And then he says, he talks about how other people think about him in verse 4. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. So Sheol and the pit, those are synonymous here. They're mutually interpreting. The, the place of the dead informs both of them. And what he's saying is, people regard me as being as good as dead. And then at the end of verse 4, he says, I am a man who has no strength. I have, I have no help, he says. I have no power to overcome this. And then, and then it gets worse in verses 5 and 6. Verse 5, he says, 
like one set loose among the dead. So, you know, in in verse 3, he's saying, I have this desire for death. Verse 4, other people regard me as being as good as dead. And then verse 5, it's as though I'm among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave. This is the worst part about being dead. Verse 5, he says to the Lord, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. And now in verse 6, it's like he's beginning this transition from focusing on himself, which is what he's been doing to this point. He's been talking about his feelings to this point. And now he's going to turn to the Lord, and he's going to start to recognize some things. So verse 6, he says, You have put me, you, you, Lord, have put me in the depths of the pit. So those references to the dead and the slain and the grave in verse Five, and then this reference to the, the pit in verse 6, that ties those two verses together. And now he's attributing this to the Lord, putting him in the pit, in the regions, dark and deep. So this is an all-day, near-death cry for help. And Heman is describing himself as a man who is forlorn, forsaken, and forgotten. Verse Five, like those whom you remember no more. And yet he prays to Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the God of his salvation. He he knows that others consider him fit for the pit. He likens himself to the slain in the grave. And yet day and night he cries to the Lord because death should not prevail. Hope persists, faith endures, and to the Lord he cries. At the end of all things, on what do you rely? When when you're here, when, when you feel like you've got nothing, what is it that you're crying out for? Heman, I contend, is maintaining his identity as one of God's people and finding his significance in God. Um, Tim Keller, he, he uh, tells this story of this, uh, this physician and professor and author named Atul Gawande, who tells of a doctor working at a nursing home who persuaded its administrator to bring in dogs and cats and parakeets and a collection of rabbits and even a group of laying hens to be cared for by the residents of this nursing home. The results were significant, and this guy Gawande writes, the residents began to wake up and come to life. People who had believed they, people who we had believed weren't able to speak started speaking. People who had been completely withdrawn and non-ambulatory, Paul would tell you that means they don't walk anymore. (laughs) Paul Tennant one time said something like, you're having an ambulatory problem there, aren't you? Anyway, uh, people, Gawande continues, Uh, People uh, who had been completely withdrawn and non-ambulatory started coming to nurse's station and saying, I'll take the dog for a walk. All the parakeets were adopted and named by the residents. The use and need for psychotropic drugs for agitation dropped significantly. And death rates fell. We need a reason to live. 
and, and we seek a purpose for life. I would suggest to you that if you know God, if you know God, if you trust Christ, no suffering, no trial is ever pointless. Heman starts to learn from his suffering. To this point, he's been focused on how he feels, hasn't he? He's been focused on his near-death condition. Things start to change now in verse 7. Look at the first words of verse 7. Your wrath lies heavy upon me. You know what he's saying? He's saying, I'm a sinner. You're just. And I'm suffering, and I recognize this at this point. I'm suffering because of my sin. Now, you know, he's not spelling out a a this for that kind of thing. I did this, and so I suffered that. He's not saying that. He's just recognizing I am, I am in the wrong. I am a sinner. I am unjust. And you are altogether good and just and right. So his suffering has brought him to a place where he recognizes God's justice. And he recognizes that what he's dealing with is the wrath of God. If you're in pain this morning, our prayer is that God would give us eyes to see what Heman sees. You see how this has worked for Heman? The, the, the circumstances that he's in, which he doesn't spell out. He doesn't specify for us exactly what he's dealing with. But they've clarified his vision. They've given him spiritual insight. They've eliminated distractions and excuses. And they've brought him to this point where he recognizes God is just. And what I'm dealing with is the, the just wrath of God against my sin. Your wrath lies heavy upon me. And then he uses language in the middle of verse 7 that sounds like that that passage we read from Jonah earlier. You overwhelm me with all your waves. Same terminology from Jonah 2, 1 through 9. You could could render this reference to waves as breakers. It's the idea that the the waves are crashing. If you've ever watched the waves come in, you know that that there's a certain point where as it swells, it, it, it crashes over. That's what he's describing. It's like God's waves are pounding him right at the breaking point and and just crashing over him. You overwhelm me with all your waves. So he's dealing with God's wrath and the consequences of his actions. Look at verse 8. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. The Lord Jesus, in Matthew chapter 12, verses 39 through 41, said to his contemporaries, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. And then he went on to talk about how just as Jonah was three days and nights in the belly of the whale, the Son of Man would be three days and nights in the belly of the earth. And and I think that this connection between Psalm 88... And Jonah, this linguistic tie between these two passages, forges a relationship with them so that we can can see this also typifying the experience of the Lord Jesus, who on the cross bore the full brunt of God's wrath and who in in the lead up to that, we we read that passage in, in Mark's gospel earlier, 
where it said, And all forsook him and fled. You have caused my companions to shun me. And Jesus said in, in Mark 10, 38, that he had a baptism to undergo. And right here, you've got the wrath of God taking the form of immersing waves that, that, that this sufferer is being plunged under, that he's enduring as he undergoes the, the, this baptism in the floodwaters of God's wrath. The experience that Heman is describing here is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus, who was uh, tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin, and who for our sake was made a curse, so that in him we might receive the blessing of Abraham. And so the good news, the good news of Christianity is, as, as one of my professors put it, Jill and I once got to travel to Jerusalem, and, and I remember we were in, we were making our way around the historical sites, and we went to this one location where they think Jesus was held overnight, this, this cave-like cell where they think that, you know, between his arrest and him being hauled before these various officials, they think they might have stashed him in this holding place. And John Hanna said, he was forsaken and alone, so I would never have to be. That's beautiful. That's the truth of the gospel. The Lord Jesus was forsaken and alone. He was shunned by all his companions. He was alienated from his father so that we could be reconciled, so that we could be brought home. And if you're here this morning and you're not identifying as a Christian, what we're saying to you is not only you can find your identity in God, you can find meaning and purpose for your life in God, but also there is one who bore the curse on your behalf. And if you'll turn to him, if you'll look to him, if you'll place all your hope and trust in him, he will save you to the uttermost. As we come to verse 9, we're, verses 9 and 10, we are right in the middle of this psalm, and we're at the turning point. We're, we're at the point where where the psalmist begins to respond. So it's like he's described for us his difficulties and his own emotions and, and his circumstances in verses 1 through 6. And then he recognizes that this is stemming from God's wrath in verses 7 and 8. And now he starts to respond in verses 9 and 10. He says in verse 9, My eye grows dim through sorrow. And that, that, that's like a summary of everything he's described to this point. This is having a physical effect upon me. My eye is dim through sorrow. Every day, he continues, I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. And now at this point, he's going to tell us what he's saying to God. And what he's saying to God is, is an appeal. It's an argument. It, it may not sound like an argument. It may sound like questions. But there's an argument in these questions. He's, he's making a case in these questions. Look at what he says there in verse 10. Do you work wonders for the dead? There's some, there's some underlying presuppositions in this question. That question is assuming some things. It assumes that God does wonders for the living, right? God delivers living people. 
That's the first thing it assumes. It also assumes that God does those wonders to make himself known among the living. And this appeal, do you work wonders for the dead? It seems to assert, Lord, if you let me die, you won't have me among the living anymore on whose behalf you could work wonders. And the the next question is like it in the middle of verse 10. Do the departed rise up to praise you? Now, what this assumes, this question, this question assumes uh, that, that God's love for his people and God's desire to show his power and glory on their behalf should provoke those who know God to rise up and celebrate God for what he has done, right? So, do the departed rise up to praise you? If you let me die, I won't, have, I won't be here to rise up and celebrate the wonders that you do on behalf of the living. Hey, love, I need my phone. I loaned my phone to my wife earlier, and I've got this great quote that I want to read to you on the phone. So, sorry, excuse me just a moment. What he's saying... What he's doing as he makes this argument, he's saying, God, I know that you built the world as a place in which you intend to display your glory. And I know that you love your people, and I know that you love to to do wonders on behalf of your people, and you love for your people to praise you. Will that continue if you let me die? Do you hear what is behind these questions? Behind these questions is a passionate desire to live. Not only a desire to live, a desire to see God's glory in life. And that continues in the questions in verses 11 and 12. Look at verse 11. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Lord, I know that you want your character proclaimed. Do the dead proclaim it? Or your faithfulness in Abaddon, Abaddon being the place where the dead are destroyed. And and the obvious answer to these questions is, no, they are not. And so the implication is, you should preserve me alive. In In the preface, this is the quote that I have on my phone, in the preface to his book, The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis, as he's, he's sort of making a, a, you know, an apology for, for trying to help people deal with their pain, and he's, he's responding to the fact that he knows that people have probably suffered worse things than he has. And he says, this is C.S. Lewis, he says, I was never fool enough to suppose myself qualified, nor have I anything to offer my reader except my conviction that when pain is to be born, a little courage helps more than much knowledge. And I just want to insert something here about courage. Courage is is what we feel when we recognize that the people that I'm trying to protect matter more to me than my own physical safety. And, and, And in this case, I think the courage is applied to the Lord. I want to be courageous in my pain because I'm enduring this for the Lord. And do you hear the identity And the significance and meaning behind that? A little courage helps more than much knowledge. A little human sympathy more than much courage. So to have other people 
I mean, Heman the Ezraite is alone, right? His companions have shunned him. A little human sympathy. Not, not, not judgmental. Well, you, you know, you got yourself into this mess. But I'm sorry you're dealing with this. We're with you. A little human sympathy is more, is more than much courage. And then the last line. The least... So um, let me start over so you can get the whole context of this. I have, n- I have nothing to offer my readers except my conviction that when pain is to be borne, a little courage helps more than much knowledge. A little human sympathy more than much courage. And the least tincture of the love of God more than all. A tincture, you know, you can imagine food coloring or something being dropped into water. It's a tincture of the love of God and it just spreads all through. That helps more than all these things. This is what Heman, the Ezraite, is clinging to. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in a baden? Verse 12, are your wonders known in the darkness among the dead or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? And obviously the answer to all these questions is no, they're not. And so what Heman is implying is, Lord, you should deliver me. This shows us what Heman lives for. He lives for the right things, doesn't he? He also models right motivations for all of life as he stares his death full in the face. This section of Psalm 88 should prompt us to examine our motivation. It should prompt us to to ask ourselves, "Why why do I want to go on living? What am I looking for in life? Am I crying out to the Lord like this? Am I asking the Lord, show your power in my life, work wonders in my life? Let me rise up and praise you. Cause your steadfast love to be declared all through, your faithfulness all through everything about me. Make me somebody who makes your wonders known and your righteousness known. Heman continues in verses 13 and 14. And he continues, I I think there's a, a very slight note of hope when he says in verse 13, but I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. There's a little suggestion there. He's going to live through this night. He's going to make it. And he's going to go right on praying to the Lord. He's going to persist in this faithful, pouring out of his soul to God. And look at what he's doing here. Look at how he's appealing. Look at, look at when, when, you, when you ask questions like this, ask yourself, what you're hoping this question is going to stick to in the person that you're talking to. Verse 14, O oh Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Do you know what he's appealing to when he asks those questions? He's appealing to God's compassion and God's love for his people. He, he's asking these questions because he knows that God loves him. He knows that God... God must have a good reason. I don't know what it is. Whatever it is, I want his sympathy for me to overwhelm that. And I want him to draw draw me near and lift up his face on me, not put me away and hide his face from me. So, So there's just wonderful awareness 
of God's love here. Verses 13, I'm sorry, 15 and 16. He's back in this near-death situation. Afflicted, verse 15, and close to death from my youth up. I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. And then the water imagery again in verse 16. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. And here too, in the description of his situation, he's appealing to God's sympathy, isn't he? He's appealing to God's love for him. And then finally, verse 17, the water imagery continues. They surround me. God's dreadful assaults. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. He's alone. He feels forsaken. He's enduring alienation and abandonment. And nevertheless, he's crying out to the Lord as he endures God's wrath, as he suffers the rising waters and the breaking waves of God's punishment. Through all of that, he maintains, Yahweh is the God of my salvation. Through all of this, he maintains, God can help me through this. This is like a testimony of faith that he hasn't seen pay off yet. It's a testimony, though, that's recorded in Scripture, laid down for our instruction. Pointing forward, Heman's experience points forward to the one who was forsaken that his people might be comforted. Cursed that his people might be blessed. The one who bore the sins of his people in his body on the tree as he was baptized in the floodwaters of God's wrath that his people might rise with him to newness of life, the one who suffered outside the camp to open the way to the holy places. I don't know what the purpose of, of suffering that God has. I, I, I can't explain all that, but I do know, I do know that like Heman, often God uses suffering to refine and purify and and deepen and Conform us to the image of Christ. And I know this. Finding your identity in God and finding your significance in living for God is better than any of the alternatives. This is meaning that you discover that's there, not meaning that you try to create and impose. C.S. Lewis writes, uh, considering this this whole question of, of meaning and significance, he says, you might decide to simply have as good a time as possible. The universe is a universe of nonsense, but since you're here, grab what you can. Unfortunately, you can't, except in the lowest animal sense, right? So he's saying, you know, if, if you think there's no, there's no God, there's no purpose, uh, you can try to have the best time you can, but, but the only way you'll be able to do that is at the basest level of your desires, He says, Lewis says, be in love with a girl if you know and keep on remembering 
that all the beauties, both of her person and of her character, are a momentary and accidental pattern produced by the collision of atoms, and that your own response to them is only a sort of psychic phosphorence arising from the behavior of your genes. You can't go on getting very serious pleasure from music if you know and remember that its air of significance is a pure illusion that you like it only because your nervous system is irrationally conditioned to like it. You may still, in the lowest sense, have a good time, but just insofar as it becomes very good, just insofar as it ever threatens to push you on from cold sensuality into the real warmth and enthusiasm and joy, so far you will be forced to feel the hopeless disharmony between your own emotions and the universe in which you think you really live. That empty, irrational thing that evolved. So I submit to you that knowing God is the best way to suffer and that that's exactly the way that Heman the Ezraite models suffering for us in Psalm 88. And this suffering is going somewhere in terms of the, the organization of the whole book of Psalms. The previous psalm, Psalm 87, was looking forward to a new Jerusalem. This psalm, under the darkness of God's wrath, precedes Psalm 89, which is going to tell us about the destruction of the Davidic kingdom. And so it's, like, it's almost like the Garden of Gethsemane in Psalm 88 before the crucifixion in Psalm 89. But we know where that's going too, don't we? Let's pray. Father, we could never dream up a story so good. We could never come up with an identity so significant to be made in your image and likeness, created to reflect your character in your world. And Lord, we could never, we could never write for ourselves a story in which the kinds of things that you have appointed for us must be endured. We wouldn't have the stomach to do this to ourselves. But Lord, we know that you're good. And we know that you are right. And we know that we can trust you. And so we pray that you would make us people who suffer well. People who recognize that you have a good purpose for everything that you've appointed for us. And the Lord Jesus has taken the worst of it. So give us courage, Lord, and help us to show sympathy to one another. And most of all, give us your steadfast love and help us to keep the faith to the very end. In Christ's name, amen.